Well, we're in a series right now, uh, Epic Meal Time, in which we're looking at uh, different meals throughout the scriptures. And certainly we have one here, though certainly a very odd one. So we can admit that right from the get-go. Um, but at the end of John's Gospel, John 21, uh, if you remember that uh, passage, if you've read through the, uh, the Gospels, or you've read through John, you've come to chapter 21, you'll remember there's an episode there where the resurrected Jesus is talking to Peter. You guys remember this one? Remember he's having this conversation with him? And knowing what preceded this encounter, namely that Peter uh, had denied Christ, not just once, not just twice, but three times, uh, we might think that what would come of this conversation would be what I might call a kind of Festivus experience. Now, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know immediately what I'm talking about. Airing of grievances, feats of strength. Jesus would try to pin him immediately to the ground and say, what were you thinking, Peter? But that's not what happens. No, Jesus has something else in mind. And that's, that something is neither punitive or dismissive. Instead, Jesus does something quite different here. He does what we might say is restorative at that moment. Peter, who denied Christ three times, is now asked by Jesus three times whether he loves him. And each time Peter answers in the affirmative. And there's a kind of recommissioning here of Peter that's going to occur with Jesus. And Jesus is going to use very particular words as he calls them to the ministry of nurturing care of God's people. He uses shepherd imagery there. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He also says, tend my sheep. Of course, the shepherd imagery made quite an impression on Peter. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, he talks about his own role using this imagery, and he exhorts church elders uh, with the same imagery of, of watching over a flock. Even in our own day, this imagery continues of shepherds and Christian leaders. The modern word pastor actually derives from the Latin word for shepherd. We see if we look at the Roman Catholic Church, you'll see bishops. They carry a, a staff. It resembles a shepherd's crook. And it's not uncommon to hear church leaders in our own day talk about their flock. So being a shepherd of God's flock, check. Peter's got that one down. Who's in that flock? Well, that's our text today. So here we go. A number of years ago, there was a commercial on TV. I don't know if you remember this commercial. It was by the LDS, the Latter-day Saints, Mormon Church, in which they quoted John chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. Right? And it talks about these other sheep, and it goes, the Book of Mormon. <laughs> right? It talks about these other sheep, the Book of Mormon. But the passage reads, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And though the LDS commercial performed curious interpretive moves uh, in what they were saying, the text itself, the context that exists here in Jesus' words is that these other sheep are non-Jewish, that they're outside of, of the Jewish people group, nationality, religious uh, world. And they're very much like people like you and me today. Many of us are probably would fit into that, that bill. And though that doesn't seem earth-shattering that Jesus would welcome into the fold people from outside Judaism, in our own day, that was radical talk back then. If you go back and you read John chapter 10, you'll notice that there's some people in that audience who think Jesus is out of his mind. They think he's demon-possessed. You can see that in John 10, verses 20 and 21. And not just that audience. Uh, later, the Apostle Paul will refer to this idea of one flock of Jews and Gentiles composing this, this one group as a mystery not made known in former generations. That's the conversation in Ephesians chapter 3. 
And in fact, this idea of Gentile inclusion not only prompted an early council in Jerusalem, but it also became an emphasis point for Paul in his letter to the Galatians. And we saw that in our study of Galatians. And if you remember Galatians, particularly Galatians chapter 2, you'll be reminded that Peter was one of those who had difficulty with what this inclusion would look like. That that was a challenging point for Peter. He struggled with what it even should look like. And Paul will call him out on it in Galatians. But here in Acts, in our text this morning, we have here the groundwork for the church's expansion toward becoming the flock that Jesus has in mind. And that expansion is noted here in the way that the editor of this book has assembled it. You notice we're in chapter 10 with this particular vision. If you go back one chapter in chapter 9, you'll see the conversion of a Jewish man who will go on to become the noted apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul himself. But with Jesus' words in mind, how did Peter get this all mixed up? Right? It's all right there in print. Why wouldn't he just read the Bible? Of course, the, answer, the obvious answer is he's human. He's like you and me. He's a person like you and me. And in our humanness, we sometimes think we have it all figured out, only to learn that later we got it wrong. Think of Russell Wilson's pass in Super Bowl 49 at the end of the game. I was reading a reader. Yeah, that was low, wasn't that? That was a low blow. How dare you take on a Bronco like that? I was reading Reader's Digest this last week of a couple examples of where people thought they had got it right and ended up actually getting it totally wrong. There's a story about a serial bank robber a few years ago in Pittsburgh who was known to police for his red beard, right? That's the describing a red-bearded bank robber. So for his next heist, he wore a disguise, a red beard, to cover his red beard. This is really, this was from the news. The robber was arrested after his getaway car was recognized as belonging to a red-bearded bank robber. <laughs> Second story that this uh, Reader's Digest included was regarding a ministry called Lifesavers Ministries, which helps disadvantaged children. And the organization posted a billboard featuring the quote, He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Powerful quote. A bit manipulative, but a powerful quote. The quote included its source. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Following public outcry, <laughs> the billboard was pulled and the founder of Lifesavers Ministries offered this. We are pulling the billboard and certainly never intended to cause confusion. How would that cause confusion? How would we be confused in America about a billboard crediting Adolf Hitler? Now our story for you and me may not be one of infamy or illegal behavior. But I think most of us have a story or two or maybe even ten of where we thought we had it right. And it turns out that we were actually wrong all along. So we have the issue. But what do you do about it? We've got the same predicament that Peter's got. But what, what, do, you, what do you actually do about that? Well, here's the answer. I got the answer for you this morning. After much study and much exegetical work, we've arrived at the answer. Spirit vision. It's that easy. Spirit vision. Not Netflix. Not Amazon Prime Video. Not YouTube. Spirit vision. The book of Acts provides us with insight of what this spirit vision looks like. And today's reading shows us it clearly. 
In spirit vision, you see beyond what you can just see. You get to see both sides of the coin. See what's going on in other places and what's happening. And so when we see that, we see, first of all, there's two visions here. Vision number one. In that first vision, my regular vision paints a picture of a man who works for the local power, the empire of the day, the ones who has everybody under their thumb. That person can't possibly be part of the community of faith that's called together by the Prince of Peace. That person is disqualified because they are not a peacemaker. They belong to the military force of that empire. That's regular vision. But spirit vision shows us something else. It tells us that that other, that one who seems to be outside of what God is doing, is someone that shouldn't be written off. Tells us that this person is someone who God loves. Tells us that even though Cornelius may not have all the answers, and certainly he's going to go and look for those answers, God calls him and commands him to go and find Simon Peter. And so he's going to find out more. But even before that point, this same person is a person that's noted for being committed to prayer, who has been generous in almsgiving, caring for the poor. And those things we read in verse 4 of our text go up to God as a burnt offering, using the imagery of true worship of one who is even seemingly outside the fold is offering worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God. God sees and hears Cornelius. And spirit vision allows us to see that as well. That in his first vision, Cornelius is able then to hear and see God. You get the directions on how to step out in faith and obedience, which Cornelius does. We're reminded here, of course, of a few things from this first episode, from this first vision, that one, God loves people that I might struggle to love. This is an outsider. This guy has no business being here. Why would I love that person? They represent everything that stands in opposition to what I believe. God loves people that I might struggle to love. Two, God's gracious invitation goes out to people that might surprise you and me. It's rather surprising of the people that God calls into the community of faith. Just, you're, you're not sure about that one? Just remember that you're called, <laughs> and that should surprise you. The third thing is this, is that an outsider can truly serve and worship God, and we're not to miss that. The second vision, of course, is around a, around a meal. And in, in normal human thinking, you might think, of course Peter had the vision that he had. Of course he went to that trance because the text tells us he was hungry. And when you're hungry, you do strange things. And you imagine strange things. You might imagine a sheet with a bunch of animals coming down. Anybody ever imagine that one? No, you just got hangry or something. But here's Peter. He's hungry, it says in verse 10. But here's where the spirit vision comes in. The spirit vision helps us to see that Peter then is allowed to see beyond his own circumstances, but also to see amidst his own circumstances. That sometimes the, the, the breakthroughs or the epiphanies that come to us from God don't necessarily come because of particular technique or because we've exerted tenacious effort. It doesn't mean that you have to go out on a spiritual retreat somewhere or lock yourself in a cave or position yourself at the top of a pole. 
to make sure that you have that epiphany, but that God works within the mundane. You're hungry, and God presents you with a larger vision for what the church will be and calls you to a greater kind of faithfulness in that. And what an epiphany it was for Peter. Peter's perspective changes here. It solidifies something in his heart, a message that Jesus said so long ago, but for him now is solidified here. And we'll see that just outside our text in verses 34 and 35. When he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Spirit vision. Spirit vision. So what do we do with this text? Right? What do you do with that? It seems like it's a historical text on one front, right? It's setting the stage for us to understand why the church is multinational. Why there's so many different ethnicities that compose the church. All the ethnicities, all the nations are welcome. It sets the stage for us to understand how the earliest church came to that place of recognizing and, and trying to live into Christ's own teaching and vision for what this church and what this community would be. But what do you do with it today? How do we take this story with a seemingly strange vision account? What do we do with that? Well, let me offer a few things for us to consider. The first one is this. Notice prayer throughout the text. Notice that the people, the characters that are inhabiting this text are, are people who are committed to prayer. You have that from Cornelius. You also see it with Peter. Interesting things happen when you pray. Praying people seem to have some kind of access point there to spirit vision. Now, does that mean that every time you pray, you're going to have this phenomenal vision that's going to open up worlds for you that you could not possibly see? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it certainly means the possibilities there. And we see that in this story. That the visions came, the trances came when both of these people stepped into that place of prayer. And they went into their prayer closets and began to pray. The second thing here is this idea of the condition that we find ourselves in. We, of course, have conditioned ourselves in many ways to close out those whom God has called. It's a human protective instinct that we have. It's a thing that we do, we call it the I, right? I isolate myself, I insulate myself to create a community in which I can enjoy the benefits, and that sometimes comes at great loss for other people. I remember recently a wave of emotion, and I mean very recently, a wave of emotion that came over me in a very, very strange way. I wasn't expecting this at all. Certainly that's how waves of emotion work, I think. Um, but this, this was a, a very strange and odd, and I couldn't put words to it at the time, but it revolved around my oldest daughter. She's playing soccer now. We'll use that in the most liberal sense. So she's, she's playing soccer on her first Parks and Recreation uh, soccer team. Go Tigers! And the day they handed out the uniforms was particularly special. Uh, with each kid receiving their shirt, has the team name on it, has the sponsor. Our sponsor is like lunch meat or something. Land of Frost lunch meat, I think is what it is. Um, and the player number on the back. And my daughter got the number nine. Wow, no one's excited about that, right? The number nine took me back to my sophomore year of college instantly. How weird, huh, right? 
He's handed the number nine jersey. I've told before, I think I've mentioned before that I played college soccer for about five minutes. Um, literally, if you probably had it up all the time I spent on the field, it was about five minutes. Um, I was the worst player on a bad soccer team. Let's just put it that way. But the summer leading up to my sophomore year of college, I was watching uh, the World Cup. And that year, there was a lot of fanfare because the U.S. looked to be competitive, which it hadn't been uh, leading up to that point. And they might even qualify to go to the next round was where all the talk was at. So I got hooked. I began watching. I didn't, I didn't play soccer. Uh, I just started watching it, and I thought, wow, that looks fun. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to try out for my college team. Has anyone ever had that thought? Like, you watch something on TV, and you decide you're going to now become that? That was me. I went and bought shoes, I bought shin guards, and I bought a ball. And I began training all summer long. And I remember when it got to uh, the, the time to try out for the team, I was totally terrified because I didn't actually know the rules of soccer when I got there. Um, but I had the shoes, the shin guards, and the wrong size ball. But I, I got there, been practicing all, all summer, and at the end of the week, I made the team, which I couldn't believe. I was, I was shocked. If only they knew what I knew, which was nothing. <laughs> And I remember they had their handing out all the jerseys, and I didn't go in to get my jersey. I had to wait, because I, I was sure they were going to tell me, no, nope, Jimmy, you're out. They said, Jimmy, get in here, have your jersey, and they handed me my jersey, and it was the number nine. And that's why the wave of emotion came. Because I remember that day. That day didn't only represent an accomplishment for me, a summer of training. It meant I belonged. It meant I was part of that team. Something that I could not even imagine for myself. But they were telling me, you belong. And I think one of the challenges for us as a, as a people, and this text here opens up the doors and categories for us, and why spirit vision is so important for us, is because we so often neglect the opportunity to hand someone outside the team a jersey and tell them they belong. And we do that even in our own day. We so oftentimes will neglect our community, or people around us for all kinds of reasons. Uh, some of them good, but most of them are bad. And we keep them out and we keep them away. For us this morning, the story is one that certainly is of unusual visions and of God's powerful voice speaking in the hearts of one who's an outsider and certainly to one who's an insider like Peter. But even more, it's a story of belonging. It's a story of a shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, as Peter will call him in 1 Peter, who calls a flock that's made of a people, a diverse community of all the world, of all ethnicities, and welcomes them and invites you and me to serve as under-shepherds, to welcome people into this flock, to nurture and care for them. Can we live in that place? Can that be the place we belong? Our own catechism and confessions say we belong to God. We belong to Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we may have the expansive vision to see that we are not the only ones. Maybe so in our generation.